Coming to you from the Outer Mission, this is Monkey Block, a storytelling podcast focused on San Francisco's golden past, 1849 through 1906. I'm your host, Girlina. The stories are closely based on newspapers of the time, historical books, and journals. Disclaimer, I do my best to research and share the real stories, extracting legends or calling them out. Now, let's go back in time. Transcripts and cited sources for this episode can be found at twitter.com slash monkeyblocksf or facebook.com slash monkeyblocksf. Look for the episode and follow the Sprout link and click on the transcript button. This is part two of episode two. In part one of episode two, I described life for the Ohlone at the Mission San Francisco the Assis, 1776 through 1830s, and I go over some of the details which happen to be missing from my fourth, fifth, and sixth grade California history lessons. We have the victors, who usually write history, and the oppressed, who don't have a lot of say in how their history gets captured. What's interesting is that sometimes in history, the victor becomes the oppressed, and a new victor gets named. In the past, I noticed a sudden absence of any indigenous mentions in San Francisco history right after the mission secularization. It was easy to find references before and during the mission period, but just after the mission period, what happened in San Francisco that I I stopped reading about any indigenous mentions. Today we start in the 1830s, just after the mission system was disassembled or secularized. And I'll topically cover the rancho days of the San Francisco district, bringing us right up to the 1840s, just before the United States claims California. So far, the victors whose history I've been relaying has been the Spanish, which became the Californios history, with the oppressed being the indigenous, the native Californians. But California's official language isn't Spanish. So somewhere over time, the victor changes. Before I begin today's story, I'll provide background about the California missions from from the Spanish perspective. The Spanish Crown's original plan was to fund the California missions for 10 years. And that was deemed enough time for the indigenous to learn the skills to live the lifestyle expected in a Spanish pueblo or town. Spain's interest in California was to quickly secure the land for the economic potential of the land as well as the people. Since the English and the Russians had also shown interest in California, Spain had to act quickly. And the Padres, they wanted to set up missions in new territory. The missions with presidios along the California coastline would provide that occupation and protection, so Spain funded the Padres' request to create missions in California. This is interesting. Spain's plan was 
that all of the mission land, after the anticipated 10 years, would be converted into small farms with the land being divided and owned by the freed Indian families who had worked at each of the missions. Personalizing this, let's say you and your family were at the San Francisco Mission the Assis for 10 years. Your family would receive a parcel of that immediate mission land, which you had been tending to, and at this point you would have the farming know-how to maintain it. Spain's idea was that the mission communities were to each become their own regular pueblos with independent Indian families capable of maintaining their farms, paying taxes as farmers, ranchers, craftsmen, and as practicing Catholics. They would become gente de razón, people of reason, in those 10 years. But the mission system continued for over 60 years. Every time Spain moved to defund the missions, the padres had a convincing reason to continue the status quo. This episode is primarily based on two sources with the links to those sources in my transcripts. Stephen W. Hackle's Land, Labor, and Production, The Colonial Economy of Spanish and Mexican California, and a report for the Golden Gate National Recreation Area, Ohlone Costanoan Indians of the San Francisco Peninsula and their neighbors, Yesterday and Today, Chapter 8, Secularization and the Rancho Era, 1834-1846. through 1846. Here we go. By the end of the 18th century, the Spanish crown was reducing their funding for overseas ventures, like Alta, California. When Mexico won independence from Spain in 1831, Mexican governor of Alta, California, Jose Maria Echendia, officially declared the mission secularization process for the same reasons as Spain's crown. He felt the mission system had gone on too long and was no longer worth funding. Spain, and then Mexico's gradual defunding of California, started the decline of the missions in the Presidios, with the ultimate burden of that defunding being on the native Californians. Echendia began the process of having administrators appointed to determine how the now Mexican-owned mission land and property would be distributed to the Indians, which was met with a lot of resistance from the same people previously resisting Spain's desire to stop funding of the missions for more than 60 years, which included the clergy at the missions. Well, I'm sure not everyone resisted the secularization and move to give the Indians the mission land. The mission and presidio system, in theory, could have survived longer had the soldiers and padres changed their existing business model to learn how to make the adobe bricks, clothing, and food on their own, rather than to continue relying on the dwindling indigenous labor force. 
Chapter 4, Results of the Labors of the Missions from San Francisco, A History of the Pacific Coast Metropolis by John Young in 1912. Young wrote, As far as the Spanish government was concerned, the missions were meant to be temporary, to create a civilized society when the time was right. How the Padres behaved, and how they maintained their missions, they didn't act in a manner that would indicate any plans to make the converted into independent citizens capable of supporting themselves. Hold on to that. George Vancouver, an English captain, wrote of his first-hand experience visiting California missions. The aptitude of the Spanish for colonization was never of the highest order, and those of them who engaged in it were rarely the best of their race. The most of them were disposed to look at the world to furnish them a living without exertion, and the tendency was called into constant play when they came in contact with a race regarded by them as inferior, and their ignorance fully matched their inertness. Hmm. A few years later, in 1834, now Governor of Alta California, Jose Figueroa, issued the Provisional Regulations for the Secularization of the Missions, requiring the distribution of mission property, land, cattle, equipment. Figueroa also appointed administrators to take inventory of the missions, and then once appraised, these items would be sold and a portion would be given to the freed Indians. Did you catch that? We went from all mission land to a portion of mission land going to the freed Indians. But in 1836, under a lot of pressure, Governor Figueroa issued his decree of confiscation. He retracted his statement to give a portion of the property to the freed Indians. Instead, the decree of confiscation began the assignment of mission lands to businesses or awarding the land to soldiers and political friends. But he died during his term. In 1837, now Governor Juan Bautista Alvarado began the process of awarding California land grants. But it wasn't until 1838 through 1840 that the majority of the San Francisco district and peninsula lands were divided among private Californio families. I found the answer to my longstanding question regarding the lack of native Californian indigenous mentions in San Francisco. Once freed, the majority of the surviving indigenous left the immediate Mission San Francisco area for West Marin, the lower Sierra Foothills, Central Valley, up by Mendocino and other Pomo territory. They left San Francisco for more secluded areas where they could resume a traditional life far from Mission San Francisco the Assis, which had the highest mortality rate of all the missions. Despite the uphill battle, a few of the freed Indian families became the exception by petitioning and receiving mission, property, and land to create their own ranchos. And guess what? Those Indian families were mostly from the
the San Francisco district. Two locally ran Indian ranchos were San Bruno's Rancho Burry Burry and West Marin's Rancho Nicasio. But with most things, you know where the devil lies. How the padres behaved and how they maintained their missions, they didn't act in a manner that would indicate any plans to make the converted into independent citizens capable of supporting themselves. The two families lost their ranchos rather quickly. Speaking at a state level, if the vast majority of the land grants were given to California families, can you guess who the laborers were who worked the land? We have the freed Indians going from mission laborers for the padres to ranch laborers for Californios. Dear listener, do you think there was an improvement to the freed people there's no longer that baptismal contract tying them to a religious master. Governor Alvarado justified his distribution of Mission Ranch lands to non-Indians because... The number of Indians at the missions had decreased, while the number of Spanish-speaking inhabitants increased. <laughs> That's an interesting statement. In 1835, Mariano Vallejo was the director of colonization, which meant he granted the land in the northern part of California, which means the San Francisco district and farther north. Easily, the largest San Francisco district and surrounding land owner was Mariano Vallejo. And more locally, in the San Francisco Peninsula area, that was the Sanchez family, the father and sons, then Guerrero, Noe, Bernal, and Dejaro. These Californios all share being a Caldez for the San Francisco district and being buried at Mission Dolores Cemetery, which you can still see and visit. Mission lands were granted to political friends and soldiers. Having said that, in 1837, only 36 indigenous people were recorded as living in the immediate Mission San Francisco de Assis area. Said another way, the local San Francisco Peninsula ranchos were not the large, more successful ranchos of the Los Angeles area. In the San Francisco district, they had the land, but not the labor. But, in general, speaking at a state level, the freed Indians worked as servants and laborers doing cooking, cleaning, farming, horse, and cow tending for the cow meat, hides, and tallow, the same duties that they had at the missions. The working conditions at the ranchos were both similar and different from the missions. The most common rancho to Indian working relationship was the peon debt labor system, which was used widely in Mexico. The peon system is also called debt slavery or debt servitude. In a peonage system, you have an employer who compels a worker to pay off upfront incurred debt with work, which, which means working without pay, until the debt is paid off. 
Personalizing this, if you are the freed Indian worker, you would borrow money from the ranch owner for the upfront cost of the food and shelter being provided by the ranchero. And that includes buying the farming tools needed to do the work. Yes, even the tools. So you worked for free until the debt is paid. And with the peonage debt slavery, you can't leave your employer until the debt is paid off. So both similar and different from the missions. And remember, you and your family were supposed to be granted the mission land and property as part of 10 years, which turned into 60 more years of servitude with the missions. With this work arrangement, the indigenous perpetually stayed in debt, working for free for as long as the rancheros needed the labor. Worth mentioning, California did not use currency or really have a use for it. The mission system was based on trading and bartering, and the ranchos continued that. The California Rancho Days were marked with fancy outfits and horse riding gear, fandangos that went on for days and rodeos, European home furnishings, all to display a sense of wealth, which was all borrowed credit. The Indians borrowed from the rancheros, the rancheros borrowed from the merchants. The merchants were becoming a mix of Californios and Americans. Some of those Americans became Mexican citizens, but most came and worked here illegally. There's a credit bubble forming. The San Francisco district was changing around this time, more specifically, the area near Yerba Buena Cove. The Yerba Buena settlement town was established in 1836 to cater to the booming sea-trading commerce with incoming ships from Boston and England. The Americans tended to live in the Yerba Buena town, and the Californios tended to live near the now-defunct Mission and Presidio and around the peninsula area and the greater San Francisco district. The missions turned ranchos had a successful trading business of cowhides and tallow trading And remember, the Californios didn't need or use hard currency. They traded cowhides, which were also known as California dollars, and tallow, and that's how they supported their lifestyle. The Americans were establishing permanent trading businesses in Yerba Buena, doing business with both the Californios and the incoming ships in plain sight. But somehow the Californios missed the signs of changing times. Well, not everyone. Mariano Vallejo saw the opportunities presented by doing business with the Yankees, or Americans, and he became a prominent supporter of the American annexation of California. Vallejo felt the Americans would bring prosperity and stability to Alta California. Hold on to that for a future episode. With more Americans in Yerba Buena establishing their successful businesses based on currency, not trading, there's a socioeconomic shift in the San Francisco district. While the Californios saw the Indians as inferior, the Americans saw the Californios, Mexicans, and Spanish as inferior. And there was no change to the Indians. Vallejo had the authority 
to deport the illegally immigrated Americans who were working here illegally, but he chose not to because he was able to do business with them. While the Americans are arriving in Yerba Buena, setting up their businesses and homes near the cove, the San Francisco ranchos aren't doing very well due to their lack of labor and inhospitable farming weather. There's a credit bubble forming, and the face of San Francisco is changing. So would you call this the beginning of San Francisco's first wave of gentrification or the second wave? It's interesting how history repeats itself. Uh, Let's think about the gentrification of the Mission District, with the longtime inhabitants being pushed out by the new inhabitants who come in with their different ideas and ways of doing things and looking down on how the previous people lived and feeling how the way they do things is better. It's amazing how quickly a new group can come in and change the environment so drastically in little time with such long-lasting results. I'm talking about 1776 and the Yalamu of the Ramayatush Ohlone village, which was located exactly where the Mission District now stands. Was that who you were thinking of? Over time, all good things come to an end and things change. History evolves. Even the one-time victor can become the oppressed, with a new victor named. And that's precisely what was taking place in California and here in San Francisco. In the next episode, we will discover Yerba Buena Town and the Yankees takeover. Thank you for listening. This is Monkey Block, San Francisco's golden history. You can find Monkey Block on most podcast publishing sites. Please bookmark or favorite this podcast to be notified of new episodes. Thank you.